how do we help people who are in difficult situations? That's where I'd love to see data. And then disaggregating, really disaggregating, doing correlations um, to build smaller medical models that serve subpopulations better. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Before we get into today's episode, I want to give a special shout-out to a great team of students from our School of Journalism. Alicia, Jake, Maddie, Casey, Joanne, Dolan, and Lily. These students have been running our social media feeds this semester, experimenting with loads of creative ways to engage all of you. It's been great to learn from their creativity and hustle, and hopefully you've been enjoying the content. The metrics suggest that you might be. Okay, this week we bring you my conversation with Lori Francis, the Executive Director of Partnership Health Center. Partnership Health Center is a super interesting and important institution in our community. Lori teaches me all about community health centers, what they are, why they exist. We also discuss what she calls the social determinants of health. And she's got an important perspective on what innovation means in healthcare. Lori and her team are doing excellent work, and I'm excited for you to learn all about it right now. All right, so we're here today with Lori Francis. Lori, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. So you're the executive director of Partnership Health Center. Mm-hmm. What is Partnership Health Center? <laughs> we smile about the fact that it's the best kept secret, we believe, in Missoula, Montana. Very good. Okay. I know. We'll it's, interrogate it's great, that yeah, premise. Yeah. So it is a federally qualified health center, meaning a portion of our funding comes from your tax dollars and my tax dollars. Okay. We are a $32 million enterprise connected to the county. Uh, Five million comes from the federal government. We serve 16,000 people a year for about 67,000 visits, if that means anything to you. Those are big numbers. It's uh, it's big numbers. I'm trying to wow you with my numbers. Another big number is that we employ 220 people, and then another 50 people are part of our residency program. So we have a family medicine residency program in partnership with the University of Montana. For sure. And both hospitals. So let's talk a little bit about like what these federally qualified health centers are like what what sort of program funds this mm-hmm. or you know is yeah. this part of Obamacare like what is it mm-hmm. sure let me f- finish one more wow, oh, okay. wow number one off. more wow number is no it's okay um, is that we were the um, employer of choice winner last year in Missoula Montana for the uh, large employer of choice and right. one of our areas of focus is joy at work and we have we're at four point four on a scale of one to five so we're pretty happy about that that's pretty awesome. Yeah, we like that. Yeah, allows us to retain great, pe- attract and retain great people. So you're doing a lot of great work, yeah. and people are happy about it. Now so to the history. Let's, well, let's sort of. Well, yes, let's do the history, then let's figure out how you're doing it because those, okay. those numbers are pretty impressive. So history and context is that the health center movement. We call it a movement. It's essentially a social ec- social economic movement that began in the '60s during the War on Poverty, under the Johnson administration. It came out of the Office of Economic Development. Okay. So it's good to think about that because we call where we are now back to the future, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, during that time, that we realized that um, poverty was the main determinant of poor health. And this was especially in the East and South, all over the country, but the, the initiators were in the East and South. So that's when the whole movement started, two health centers. The physician who started it, Jack Geiger, still alive and still amazing. Um, and at that point... Um, the first investments required that you form a nonprofit 
that your board be comprised of 51% consumers of the services. Okay. That income or um, money never be a barrier to care. So those have continued ever since then. So 60s to now, we had two health centers, and now we have 1,400 nationwide serving 28 million people. So this idea that, not this idea, but this sort of, yeah, this, this idea that poverty is the largest determinant of your health outcome later in life. You know, how has that, I mean, that does that seems like something you don't hear in the media too much these mm-hmm. days, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's come in and out of favor, but that was the guiding kind of premise that, that launched this, this movement, as you mm-hmm. say. A lot of the folks we work with have two, three, and four jobs. And yeah. um, so they're working hard. They're not sitting home waiting for their small social security check. Well, and I think beyond the sort of right versus uh, privilege debate, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. which is salient. Right. There's also this notion that people make choices to to well, people make bad choices that lead to poverty, that lead to poor health. Right. And that's sort of a red herring as well. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly true. You probably know the data as well as I. But generational poverty is a real thing. And Absolutely. Then, and then there are a number of forces that help keep people stuck, like a geographic location, parents having gone to college, color of one's skin. Those all have a big impact. So let's, we'll try to talk about as many of those as we mm-hmm. can in this conversation. Let's try to just interrogate the history a little bit more. So program started in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Well, what's been the through line to, to today, I guess? You know, I think what happened in health centers happened across the country in primary medical care, which is things like family practice, pediatrics, mm-hmm. internal medicine, and psychiatry are all considered primary care. Um, and since the 50s and 60s, when the name of the game was really acute illness, healthcare was incredibly uh, helpful okay. to treat acute illness. Um, subsequently, and, and prior, we started doing immunization and prevention. So we also understood that we could prevent disease in healthcare, and we still do that, and I think we do it quite well. Mm-hmm. There's obviously pushback on some fronts around that. but um, So that was you know the, the time of acute care and medical care. Then it became chronic disease, so things like diabetes and hypertension. And those are less responsive to uh, healthcare exclusively. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So many more social factors. Exactly. Yeah. And so as, he- as health centers evolved to really think about those, I think for the last 60 years, primary care and medical care got reimbursed for billable services. Okay. So it's a revenue-generating model. Yep. So we in healthcare know how to produce visits that we can bill for. Mm-hmm. Things like social services, social workers, community health workers, medical systems, behavioral health support are not billable services for the most part. Right. Not for many procedures, part. not many machines. Need, need, need more imaging. Yeah, need exactly. Some, need some, inter- some surgical interventions to really generate revenue. Sure. So, so chronic care came on. We started paying for chronic care that we kept health centers like the rest of the country kept evolving to think more about how do we see more people offer all these other services and still have billable services embedded in that. More recently in health centers and across the country, we're thinking about different payment models. As we realize and as we acknowledge that a doctor's visit, which is important, is insufficient to produce high levels of health and well-being, um, we are trying to build teams, billable or not, that get reimbursed differently from a sort of a capitated shared savings model. Sure. So that um, 
and and we want to be paid for value. So mm-hmm. and that's really the movement in the country, right? To if we help people improve their health, we would like money for that. Whether it's a behavioral health person, whether it's a social worker, often those people are so um, impactful. Yeah. And and include medical care, but don't make medical care the exclusive driver of reimbursement. That makes sense. And so I would say health centers are back to the future. In health centers, we're, we're looking once again at how do we help people become ready to learn in kindergarten? How do we help people? We know if, we, if they're ready to learn in kindergarten, they graduate from high school. If they graduate from high school, mm-hmm. the likelihood they will be able to maintain, uh, generate an income that allows them to sustain themselves and their family is much greater. So that's a huge health outcome. And it's also breaking cycles of poverty because if their parents didn't go to high school, they probably won't graduate either. Right. So the, this rise in chronic conditions, you, know, you mentioned, you know, in the 50s, we were good at sort of dealing with acute care. And then there was, you know, immunizations and preventative measures along those lines. This rise in chronic uh, conditions, is that is that something that's always existed, this, this baseline of ma- uh, frequency of chronic conditions? Or is this, and, and then we knocked out acute and we knocked out preventative? Or is this something sort of systematic in our culture that chronic conditions are more prevalent and people are having them longer, living with them longer? Yeah, you're probably reading the same thing. I mean, it's all over the media sure. right, that um, we live longer, so we have more time to develop those. Our diets have changed dramatically in the yeah. last 50 years. Um, our lifestyle in terms of um, number of calories expended during the day has diminished drastically. Mm-hmm. Um, we've supersized everything. Um, the advent of social media, of, of TV, all those things have made a big difference. And then I would say beyond acute care and chronic care, there are now we call it, talk about the diseases of despair. Right. And when you look at the growing difference between those who have and those who have not in this country, which rivals the area of the depression, um, you see a lot more disease, chronic disease, diseases of despair that include things like suicide, depression, alcoholism, drug addiction, which is a way people medicate Mm -hmm. when they can't figure out how to get out of their circumstances. Gosh. So I want to talk a little bit about your entry point to this work. I mean, you're an emergency department nurse. Was that you, that's your first sort of job in healthcare? I would assume it's my first job in healthcare. Yeah, right? and mm-hmm. so long time ago. But since then, I've you know, studied public health. I've moved around the country, studied innovation in the healthcare space. Maybe talk a little bit about your personal journey in this space and how it how you kind of came to want to lead an organization like Partnership Health. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, I went into nursing. I had a degree in biology, which you really can't do anything with. So I went back. And I don't got know. A, I think we have some wildlife biologists on this. Well, campus that's a that good point. This is human biology. Notion. This is human okay. biology, and yeah, it, yeah. it you need to do something else with that. And um, so after teaching cross country skiing for a couple of years, um, I went back to school in nursing, and then um, really did think that the nursing model, the nursing model of care, is meant to wrap itself around medical diagnoses, medical complications, right. and help people. So it's, a, um, and probably the model I'm still following in my thinking is how do we help people improve their lives in spite of a disease, or how mm-hmm. do we treat the disease and improve their lives? Um, so it was emergency room. Then I started writing grants to look at preventing people ending up in ICU or ER. So yeah. I started a cardiac rehab program and realized that those people had already had a heart attack. So then um, started a wellness program that ideally prevented people from ever having a heart attack. So you're working L- upstream. Work, and it was uh, a slow, yeah. and then I realized the wellness program attracted uh, great people who all had resources. 
Right. And so yeah. they just, could afford to make good they choices. They could afford and they were making yeah. good and they uh, yeah, and I just it felt like it kept scratching the surface over and right. over and never getting to the root cause, which is social and economic disparities. Mm-hmm. So what has been your study of social and economic disparity? Like how did you So then, so I, you, once so, you realized so then this, I wrote a grant started it. a health center in okay. Bozeman and Livingston right. and West Yellowstone and Belgrade. And um, started offering care and seeing folks come in. And then we started um, a program called Reach Out and Read, which is to give kids books at every visit. And started to realize there that parents are living in print-free households because they uh-huh. had never learned to read. Yep. And it was a shaming thing. And we didn't want to cause people to feel shame when they came to see us. So we started an adult ed program as part of that. And then watching that whole cycle play out and watching people's health and well-being and hope and faith in the future, which is a measurable uh, 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 idea, um, watching them really truly get better in the long term versus giving them a medication for depression or a medication for anxiety, which doesn't mean you don't do that. Um, I started to see all that stuff play out. And then I don't think social terms was even a term back then. Right, but, yeah. But I come from a family of educators and always felt like education was probably where it was at. Mm-hmm. And so kept infusing education and healthcare. And then, you know, as the world has changed and continued to overinvest in healthcare, um, we, we in healthcare keep thinking about how to take the money we're getting, which doesn't feel enough to do what we're doing either, mm-hmm. but to take it and really push it to places that will make a long-term difference, like adding education to healthcare. If, if we're going to distribute it differently, not if we're not going to distribute it differently at the top, then let's distribute it differently locally. So, you know, you, you, I just want to sort of dig into something you mentioned there. So you started this organization in, in, in Livingston, applied for a grant, wrote a grant. But that, I mean, you created something from, from nothing there. Like, how did you kind of... I mean, you had the, these ideas swirling around, some education in the space, some experience, some notion that you want to change upstream factors to the extent possible. How do you then make it come to life? I mean, writing the grant's one thing, but the ideas and the organization, the execution is another thing. I think you keep attracting like-minded people sure. who are troubled by the way the world is and want to see a better world. Okay. And so um, I always say one of my best talents, I think, is hiring great people. So um, when I meet people that I think could make a difference, that if we join forces, we could make a difference, um, that has worked really well. And, and then people like that love the work mm-hmm. and are um, you know, compelled to stay engaged and look for more resources. So while it, it was really cool and it is really cool, we always say we wish we didn't have to do this work. We wish we could um, spend our time helping maybe in other ways to help people have great lives. Um, until we have a different structure nationally at the state level, we'll continue, I think, in federally qualified health centers to attract great people who want to change things. And, okay, so you had the Livingston experience and some other moves in there. You went to Oregon, spent some time in Portland, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what are you, are you seeing things differently? You know, how are things operating differently here in Montana versus in a state like Oregon? You know, that's a good question. I keep noticing how much I learned in my time away. Yeah. Sort of orga- I love on your achievements, too, like relocating from Missoula or to Missoula from Portland as your first achievement. That's, that's pretty awesome. That I, that I was able to do that. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. We're happy to have you back. <laughs> it's quite an accomplishment, you know. <laughs> no, I'm glad to be back. It was, I can tell you more about why I was interested in this position at some point. But, yeah. But so Oregon, as you probably know, is um, the whole West Coast and probably some of the East Coast is very 
far, very progressive in terms of investment in health and well-being, mm-hmm. not just healthcare. Um, so they take Medicaid dollars um, and invest in improving housing, uh, education, right. early childhood, definitely early childhood work. And then they also change their payment model, which is really cool. So uh, clinics get paid differently. If they saw 10,000 people last year and it cost a million bucks, they get a million bucks this year, and they're told, do what you need to do to help those people improve their health. Okay. So no longer do you need to see a doctor to generate revenue for each visit. You can do all sorts of things, including Mm. walking programs, help people get their GED, um, any number of things. And that's, uh, to me, the, the wave of the future. And then they're going to be at risk. So then those same people are getting a million dollars now. In three years, they'll be at risk for losing some of that or making some of it. So upside, and we call it upside and downside risk, which sure. is a bit of a misnomer, but upside mm-hmm. gain and downside risk. Um, that's happening in Oregon, and we're talking about that in Montana. So that I, I was able to bring that back here in my thinking and think, okay, so here we are. One of the things that's happening in health centers particularly, but not so much in private practice, is we screen for social and economic issues. So we ask people if they were able to pay, if they struggled in paying their rent mm-hmm. or phone, or if they live in domestically safe situations, or if they have somebody they can call when they feel depressed, if they have a history of incarceration, another social uh, factor that uh, works against people's health. So those are all things that I worked on. We created a tool in Oregon that's spread nationwide. And thinking about how we do that here in a busy clinic in order, to prepare, in order to do a better job treating people, but also to prepare to change the model significantly such that we're offering social care and economic care and health care. Sure. So a couple of things you were describing you know, from your experience in Oregon, and, and you used the word overinvest a few moments ago, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. overinvesting in health care. So you know, the notion I'm hearing is that the, we're, we're investing a lot of dollars in health care and it's not going into the right places and it's not leading to the right outcomes. Um, you know, for the listener that doesn't kind of have a good sense of where that money's going and how the, how the system works, can you sort of lay that out there, your view of this overinvestment? I can try. It doesn't make me very popular in healthcare, but that's um, okay. I mean, that's the whole point <clears throat> here, right? Well, and I think that I would say in, in Missoula, I've gotten to know um, both hospital leader, the leadership of both hospitals. They're great and totally on board, too. And how in this country we change our current payment structure to a new, more effective payment structure is going to be a painful process. Mm-hmm. If we really want fewer people in the hospital and fewer people in the ER, then fewer we have patients. Change, fewer patients. Fewer yeah, patients. Fewer yeah. patients. And we have the staff that we have to sustain and yep. a model that we have to sustain. There's a tension there, right? Absolutely. A huge tension. There's a bunch of moral hazards so in There's that. a lot of moral hazards there. And so we talk about that at the leadership level often. So when I say... There's an overinvestment. It doesn't mean that healthcare in Missoula isn't very good. It certainly is. Right. And when I I think you've read and probably a lot of people on listening to your show have heard that we get a very small return on our investment. The ROI in health on healthcare in this country is tiny compared to the amount of dollars we spend. Meaning we spend a lot of dollars and we're not getting healthier people. And then when you disaggregate, when you take the whole population being served in the country and you start dividing it up by people who are not white and people mm-hmm. who are um, who don't define who have different gender identification approaches, who you, when you look at incar- people who have a fel- history of felonies, um, when you look at um, people who haven't graduated from high school or college, you see a very clear differences in health outcomes, which is that social determinant piece. Mm-hmm. So. If you, if you really want to improve health outcomes for all, then you have to have different strategies for different subpopulations. 
And then we, I think you probably heard in the media, was it a year ago or so, that we actually have white men in this country actually declining in their, their yeah. length of life years, right? And that, there's very good data internationally that says that if you have really disparate outcomes in a country, then everybody is less well off. Mm-hmm. We don't like walking by homeless people. It hurts us. It hurts all of us. Yeah. And we then try and put it out of our mind. So, so to, to take those dollars and invest them differently, we know that 5% of the um, people who use health care um, consume 50% of the health care dollars. That, um, that needs to change. And that could change dramatically with social investing. We at Partnership were able to save the state a million dollars a year ago by investing 150000 and yet we can't get paid on that right now. So, so the argument is we're spending a ton of money. I mean, I've heard the argument we spend a ton yeah, of money on end-of-life care. Expensive stuff, ICUs, imaging, mm-hmm. machines, mm-hmm. complicated procedures right. that don't really have a meaningful impact on mortality and are super expensive. Yet we ignore a lot of the social programs mm-hmm. and social determinants that you're talking about. So let's just sort of fast forward to partnership. Like what are what are some of the pro- – like you, you have a staff of over 200 people. How is that staff distributed? What are people working on? What services are they bringing to the table? Okay. And let me just close out on your last comment oh, yeah, yeah. about people dying, that, that end-of-life care. I think that we never know when our last year is, right? So that's a little challenging. But if you ask people where they want to die, almost everybody wants to die at home. Yeah, not and the so hospital. We're, we are not having those conversations. We're trying. We're trying. We're doing a lot of work, a lot of paperwork, a lot of questions. But we don't have a social support system that allows people to make that choice and understand the choice they're making much more easily. So that's a measure that how many people, if you asked your friends, want to die in the hospital, you would not probably find one. Right. And that's where people die. Yeah. So, so there, yeah, a lot of easier ways to save money. Partnership. So 220 employees, we offer great medical care. Um, We offer dental care. This is all in the same building. You can come visit Mm -hmm. us. We have seven sites, but the Creamery, which is on uh, 401 West Railroad. Okay. Again, people who are two blocks away don't know we exist, so we hired a communications person to help get that Uh, word out. Yeah, one of our former students, Eric. Yeah, one of your MBA MBA grads. Very good. He has a podcast of his own, Insight on Impact. Check it out. That's where I met him. I think I was the first person interviewed. First person, yeah. Um, so uh, dental care, we have um, behavioral health care. We also have a model called Integrate Behavioral Health. So if you come in for a medical visit and mention that you'd like to make some lifestyle changes, you mentioned that you're a little depressed or anxious, we have a therapist who can meet with you right then. And then we have pharmacy services. We have one of the busiest pharmacies in Missoula. You probably didn't know that. No, I did not. Nope. That's another well-kept secret. It's in our basement, and we have great pharmacists there. We also have clinical pharmacists, so they come to the visits and help the physicians. And then we have um, a big residency, that family medicine residency yeah. program. So yeah. six, and that's a relatively new program, it's six, seven now years? Seven, I think we're in our seventh year. Yeah. Yeah. And they, um, we see, I think, um, like 30,000 visits of partnership and 66% of them are done by residents okay. and faculty. Yeah. And the placements from that program have been really successful in, in the sense that you know, we're training physicians to practice family medicine right. in the state of Montana. Right. So they spend a lot of time thinking about rural America and how yeah. to co- construct teams, which is really fun to think about how to help these guys. And then people go out into um, in the countryside and put together a team that's very effective, sort of like we were talking about earlier, that deals with social issues right. and economic issues, not just medical. 
So, um, yeah, they started about seven years ago. They have 10 residents a year. Uh, three go to Kalispell in their second and third year. So we have at any given time 24 residents wow. working in the clinic. That's great. Yeah, it makes it busy. I'm sure it They're does. great. I mean, yeah. they, they have a very careful selection process. These folks are really dedicated to uh, offering great health care to everybody. Um, and then the, I think they have the highest percentage of sending doctors into rural America of any family medicine um, residency in the country. Okay. A new angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. This is Anne Helen Peterson, and I am a senior culture writer at BuzzFeed News, and you're listening to A New Angle. So when you're thinking about all these different sort of types of services and thinking more broadly about health, um, how are you kind of prioritize? how do you build a culture where there's not this sort of tiers and hierarchy, <laughs> you know, where the doctors don't think that they're at the top of the pyramid and, and, and all the way down mm-hmm. the, the hierarchy. Do you think about that's that? A good, that's a really good question. I think about it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking, I've been sort of thinking and reading about, so when you talk about equalizing health outcomes, we want to equalize it in t- inside our walls too. And we know sure. that people who make the least within our organization have, uh, there's a lot of good studies um, over since the 50s that look at in, inside org- organizations that offer full health care, you still see less good health outcomes at people at the bottom, one-to-one correlation all the way up to the top. Wow. So we say my job's really stressful. It's a lot more stressful to make $13 an hour and try and figure out how to pay your rent. Right, right. Um, so, um, so equalizing power, sharing power, um, putting the patient at the center of all that we do. Um, is something we talk about very often. We do a lot of team training. We do facilitative leadership training. We put people in teams. We do, we do, um, now we're doing every six months staff engagement surveys. We look at burnout, things like that. So it's just constantly supporting teamwork, saying who's the team lead. The team lead may not be the physician. Um, I think that's probably the most effective, putting people in the same room over and over. We do trainings together. We go off-site twice a year for four hours and spend time together and get to know each other, learn a bunch. We're doing a health equity training and a a cultural um, humility training at the end of October. And just putting people all in the same room and letting them say hi is really helpful. I would suspect that the the sort of physician that would want to work at your organization would, would mm-hmm. have to share kind of that value set. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We always say that we have good jobs if they're good jobs for you. Correct. Yeah. So you have nice. to want to love our mission. If mm-hmm. you don't, you won't, you won't have a good time. You probably won't apply. Um, when we interview people, if they don't, haven't already looked at our website and know our mission, then we're not that interested in hiring them. And family medicine docs in general really like people and they... Yeah like working um, in complex situations to help people find their way. And so you said, how many locations do you have? It's seven? Seven. Seven. And, and what's the sort of um, distribution from you know, urban to, to, to rural? In terms of sites or numbers of visits? Well, in, your, in terms of sites. You know, I'm just thinking like yeah. the, the serving care here in Missoula mm-hmm. is, is a different proposition mm-hmm. than it is you know, up For on the sure. high line or something For like sure. that. For sure. So we have a site in Sealy. Okay. That's fully staffed medical, dental, behavioral health. We have um, a site in Superior that's behavioral health and dental care. It used to have medical care, but we partnered with the Critical Access Hospital. They're doing medical so they could stay alive in rural America. We're not taking those dollars or patients, which is a good challenge for everybody. 
Um, and then the rest of our sites are in town. So we have Western Montana. We have a site at Lowell School that's yep. uh, community-focused but really also looks at the school to try and make sure those kids are doing well. Um, so, And then we'll be adding a site at the food bank in oh, the great. near future. Yeah. Yeah, so that, and we're adding um, behavioral health at Willard, which mm-hmm. is very exciting. Yeah. And when you're kind of thinking about this, this variety of sites and the services you're providing – you know, this, 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 not making decisions based or you know, it, having income or ability to pay not be a barrier to mm-hmm. uh, you know, finding mm-hmm. care. How are you thinking about that in terms of the experience of the, the person coming in seeking care? Because the person going into the hospital in need of help or, you know, traditional doctor's office or whatever the case may be, it's, it's, it's sort of set up as how are you going to pay for this? What's your insurance mm-hmm. is the first thing they ask mm-hmm. you. So how, how do you kind of, how does it work in a, in, a, in a shop like yours? Yeah, yeah, that's a funny, good question because I've, I've been in community health centers for 20 years now, so I forget that that's actually really it's just critical normal. difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. everything about us is money will never be a barrier to care. So sure. we ask for a nominal fee. We slide fees, and the government tells us um, – where to draw those lines, not how to slide them, but where um, we call it 200% of poverty, which is kind of a weird thing, or 100%. Okay. So for uh, um, a single individual, I don't know what it is, right? It's something like 100% is like 9000 a year, which you can imagine you can afford almost nothing. Yeah. And 200% is like 18000 mm-hmm. which you can afford a little bit more than nothing, right? right? right. It's still not a lot. Yeah. So Certainly within not expensive the t- medical care. No, and, with, and to, in order to see, re- receive federal dollars, we can we have to slide fees under 200%. Over 200%, we actually can't use federal dollars to slide those. We can use other dollars. So at that 200% level, we start saying, can you pay 60? Can you pay 40? Can you pay 20? Can you pay 15 today? And if they say, sorry, I didn't bring 15, we say, okay, come on in and pay us next time. Sure. Is that conversation even a barrier? Like trying to assess how much somebody can pay? So that's, yeah. I think it probably is because there's so much shame around it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How much so, can you pay for something? Right. Well, like yeah. Nothing. Or, yeah. And then we ask people, we have to ask people for some form of income verification. They can also sign um, a letter that says, I have no tax, I have nothing. That's mandated nothing. by the feds? Like they, that is they mandated by the feds. Or they have to say, I can't provide anything because I have nothing, especially people who are homeless or, yeah. or on the move. They don't have their last tax, you know, or they never filed taxes. Right. They have no paycheck stubs. So then they just say, I have no source of income. Mm-hmm. So that's all mandated by the feds. But um, again, people, they can be in bad debt. We keep billing. Um, and then if they come back in, we just see, we never turn people away who are in bad debt. The care is given, right? Always, just, yeah, always, yeah. which is so nice. I would hate working at a place where I had to say, sorry, I know you're in pain. We can't see you. Yeah, yeah. And the ER is, you know, and so they go to the ER, which is the way we are in this country. So the mm-hmm. ER has to say yes. One of our most expensive One resources. of our most expensive that, that's fully staffed. They would rather have those folks get served where they Absolutely. should be. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, so they get served hopefully at partnership. Sure. So I want to talk about innovation. Okay. Okay. So we're thinking about you know, how the dollars are spent in the mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. And you've been working more and more upstream, behavioral care, poverty, et cetera. You know, how do you conceptualize innovation? In the healthcare space, because a lot of people hear the word innovation in healthcare, they think fancier imaging machine hmm. or some new pharmaceutical drug or something mm-hmm. like that. But I'm sort of skeptical that would be your conception of innovation. Yeah, that's not even anywhere in my book. Right. But um, but that's you're right. I guess that's true. Again, working in Oregon, I, we were working on what we called an advanced care model. So we spent 
years looking around the country, seeing what people are trying, what they aren't trying. We call it the sort of evidence-free zone, which is uncomfortable for all of us. We always want to do evidence-based care. Yeah, what does evidence-free even mean? Evidence-free, and that's where innovation comes in, right? We don't know the answer. Experiments. Experimenting and small experiments with data. And yep. then tweaking those experiments okay. to see if they work. Sometimes they're lifelong experiments, right? Did get, yeah. Working with the kids zero to five, will they graduate from high school? But it's sim- similar to giving somebody a drug for diabetes to save their kidneys and eyes 30 mm-hmm. years from now. We know that if a kid's ready to learn at kindergarten, they're like, that, that data exists, that if they're ready to learn at kindergarten and can focus, the likelihood of graduation is significantly Much improved. Yeah. So that's sort of innovation, right? So. Um, a lot of the innovation we talk about in healthcare is we're pulling in social programming and educational programming into healthcare because we have dollars and those guys aren't getting dollars because we're eating up the social and educational dollars in healthcare. So let's push it back in or bring it in. Can you just walk us through that mechanically a little bit more? I'm thinking of an How example. How that could look? Yeah, like what's that look like if you're allocating resources in an organization? To something like that. I can, yeah, yeah I can give you a couple examples. One is I'll do a more medical example to start because sure. that's a little easier to understand. Um, so we have our super utilizer complex care program. So people who have very difficult lives need access to health care, whether it's because they have medical issues or because they're having a panic attack or okay. because um, they overdosed. It could be any number of things, right? They end up in the ER and then sometimes hospitalized and sometimes not. And it's a very expensive place, as you pointed out. Um, the program that we started a couple of years ago with a, a couple of staff members of ours who are just really brilliant and incredibly empathic. Um, was to work with people who were using the ER, quote, inappropriately. It was the most appropriate place for them, but we tried to help them rethink how to do that, and that was by offering social support, nursing support, and constant sort of check-ins on how are you doing. We're here. Uh, What else do you need? How are your meds going? Can you access them? Do you have transportation to get to your doctor? And really helping them connect to the services available, but also helping them just not feel alone. Mm -hmm. And... We did that. Um, we did that payment payer blind. So we worked with anybody who our doctors or the ER thought sh- needed those extra services. Um, so I don't. We worked with 67 people. I think 30 were on Medicaid. We saved the state, as I mentioned, a million dollars, five hundred thousand dollars every six months. Um, this was a grant supported. So grants yeah. often support innovation, right? Sure. And I came from Oregon, and we were doing that in Oregon. These guys were doing it so much better than when I got here, much better than I'd seen in terms of results. Mm-hmm. And you have that regression to the mean. So often you think you'll just it'll go back up again. Did not go back up. It continued to go down. So, um, so that's an innovation. Often an innovation, payment hasn't caught up yet. So we were able to save the state a million dollars. We had grant funding. The state tried to create a payment model that would allow us to keep being supported. It didn't work because they tell us all the people we want to put on this program don't qualify under their federal state requirements. So we're getting about $20,000 a year in income for saving the state a million dollars, and the program costs about $150,000. So it's a loss of about $130,000 on our part, but we don't want to stop it because it's such a gain for the patients and for the community and and for the and for Medicaid. Absolutely. Um, and what I'd like is I want Medicaid to let us go at risk. Let us do it for a year. Mm-hmm. Give us nothing. And then we want to pay just even the cost of it a year from now if we save you more than the cost. I know we would. And then we you, would. Can, you can design the portfolio Let us do level, whatever we want. Level. Let us do what we want and just pay us back for our investment if we save you more than the investment. So that's interesting because, you know, right now there's all this you know, banter in the political world about different forms of, it feels like all the candidates on the Democratic side are sort of 
trying to distinguish their version of Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then the, the boogeyman of socialized medicine is sort of thrown out there by the other side and the government making decisions about your health care and all of that. But what you're describing is execution on the local level. Mm-hmm. Very, give us more latitude. More give us autonomy. more latitude. Yeah. yeah, give us more latitude, but hold us accountable. Okay. Don't just let us play. Let us play and show you that there are better ways to do this. So it sounds like everybody's wrong on these, you know, these high-level political debates. What, what, what's what's kind of the ground truth in your experience? In your experience? Hmm. That's a big question. I, realize, a, I mean, I think, I'm thinking about more. Oregon because I got to watch that sure. sort of. So they really redistributed Medicaid dollars to let community health centers that were t- providing care to 200,000 people played differently. Yeah. And they had to unlearn a lot of the things we'd learned. Is we, we've always learned how to bill. Mm-hmm. So they had to unlearn billing for medical. You, need, you don't need to max people to a doctor. You don't need to make them come in when they don't need to come in. Maybe right. you go to them. Maybe you call them. Those are all, quote, new billable services. Yeah. So in terms of your question, I don't, you know, I think, I think probably the answer is, uh, latitude, like I was saying, latitude and accountability. Uh, we there, we do have evidence of some things that need to. We need to do immunizations. Sure. We need to do um, checkups. We need to do. We need to have social. We, there's a lot of things we know are important, and then in the areas that we don't know how to do it because we've always thrown money at physician care, mm-hmm. which is good care, but not but insufficient. Um, let us play and show you that we're going to still take care of a thousand people. And we're going to save you more money than we saved doing the medical model. Um, and then if that works, we want you to keep funding us. I mean, what you're describing is, I mean, it's particularly important for underserved groups and underadvantaged mm-hmm. groups and, and, and groups in deep need. But it, it's a mindset that sh- could and should generalize to the broader population. You know how lobbying works, I bet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we, we're not we we're born. Yes. So, so when you think about the number of dollars flowing in to maintain the system, yeah. there's a lot. Oh, yeah. A lot. A lot. And I have close friends who are sort of uh, very involved in researching the Kaiser model who work intimately with helping that um, the changes in group health in Kaiser out west. They were able to save the system a lot of money. It was really effective. It meant fewer hospital days. It meant less ER and the physicians in the hospital were able to turn back the clock to go back to an old system so that the dollars kept falling into the same boxes. Mm. And I don't, I mean, I fault that sort of, you know, emotionally, but I understand intellectually that there is this strong desire to hold on to what we do. Right. And physicians are great. I don't mean that. But the physicians I work with know that, I mean, they go home to sleepless nights when they know they really haven't helped a homeless person get a house mm-hmm. or get food. So they want to see all this program, and they want to see the redistribution, and they want to pr- fa- practice effective medical care. So other innovations we're doing. Yeah. Um, so Reach Out and Read is one of our innovations, and it's actually <clears throat> evidence-based, so it's not in the evidence-free zone. It's um, having physicians prescribe books at every visit, zero to five, um, and um, helping parents understand the importance of reading to your child, because then you'll be more likely to be ready for kindergarten. Um, we're going to be adding at some point when I figure out where the money's going to come from uh, an attorney on our staff to okay. work on civil issues of, of eviction, things like that. People are caught up in, in yeah, legal troubles. So that's troubles. a huge he- health and well-being issue, yeah, right? It's yeah, not health care, but yeah. it's health and well-being. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, it, I can't quite summon the vocabulary right now, but this – it was described to me as it's really expensive to be low-income. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and I think I think of it in the context of bankability, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't have a bank account, mm-hmm. people don't even realize how hard life is without a bank account. Yeah. Have you ever followed anybody around who, who is? Well, I've had to like go stand in line at Spectrum to mm-hmm. return a yeah, cable box you, yeah. once, and then you see all these people there with cash to pay their bills. Mm-hmm. Like, why are they there with cash? Because they don't have a bank mm-hmm. account, and they got to stand in the line at Missoula Water, and they got to mm-hmm. stand in the line at Northwest Energy. Mm-hmm. They don't have a bank account, right? And you got to get to a certain threshold to get a bank account, or you have to have a security deposit to get a, you know, yeah. to get it. No, an it's impossible. Yeah. I so have these a... thresholds, like you're coming yeah. in under those thresholds. Yeah, and it's. I I wish we all could walk in the shoes of somebody who's living that life. Yeah. I I have a close friend who was homeless who I met in front of our. Um, uh, organization in Portland mm-hmm. who became good friends. I be, he and I became good friends. And we ended up finally getting him housed after about nine months of figuring out how to help him stay off the street. And um, following him literally to get his ID card, to, to draw his own social security out of his social security account costs $5 every time. A person wow. with social security uses their card to get their money it costs five bucks every time. We would never stand for that. If we, we would never. I mean, watching all the places he paid money. Yeah. Three dollars and five dollars like for everything store. he did. Yeah. It was crazy. So I watched that. And yeah. The government's incensed. issuing payday loans, essentially. Gosh. Yeah, let's squeeze water out of a stone and then yeah. like give other people huge tax breaks. Okay. Okay, yeah. we'll end on that. Well, we don't have to end there. Okay. But, uh, yeah. Um, but I do want to ask you about one thing. It's a little bit adjacent to this innovation question, but it's something that I think about in this developing world of giant data sets and Internet mm-hmm. of Things and everything is a wearable or a measurable. And, and you know, a lot of this stuff has indications, serious in, in, implications for healthcare. Um, I was reading an article about toilet seats that can detect the pH of your urine and that can hmm. then be used to be predictive of certain health outcomes downstream and could save you a physician visit or for somebody that needs to go to the lab on regular in- increments mm-hmm. for some sort of test. Mm-hmm. A lot of these things can can be much cheaper ways to address these mm-hmm. measuring or diagnostic questions, yet it, they pose big questions about mm-hmm. data security, data transfer, who owns the data. You know, mm-hmm. if, if, it, if it's Amazon owning the data because mm-hmm. they sold you the, the, the wearable, mm-hmm. like, how do you feel about that? Mm-hmm. All, all sorts of big questions. Mm-hmm. Do you think about is – that, is that at all on the radar screen for an organization like yours? It's an uh, interesting question. I, I think that it's – if we can do basic data well, that's where we are currently. Yeah, okay. and, and, and then I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I'm really jaded in life mostly. I do watch how much money is intended to sustain the current system. So Amazon's really powerful, right? So yeah. maybe, maybe, and, and we talked about this a lot in Oregon and California, maybe they'll disrupt the healthcare system. Walmart's trying to disrupt. There's all these disruptors yeah. out there trying to do a different model. Whether the customer goes for that will be interesting because mm-hmm. it's really wherever you're, you know, wherever you walk, we'll see if, if that changes. I think Patients still love their doctor. Yeah. Um, data we need now is like just interacting with Medicaid to see how much we're saving them. They're working really hard at the state level. They got a big grant recently. I just was in Denver yesterday hearing about this, where they're starting to integrate data systems. Um, things helping you out. You if you integrate um, data from SNAP, from the the food support, okay. from the the um, penal system, from uh, housing. Mm-hmm. And you look at how we're spending, how much money we're spending in these places and really not getting a great return on any of it. I mean, 
how much we spend on incarceration, how, how, oh, how, gosh, how effective yeah. is that program? Yeah. So if we start putting that money in one bucket and say, how do we help people who are in difficult situations? That's where I'd love to see data. And then disaggregating, really disaggregating, doing correlations um, to build smaller medical models that serve subpopulations better. That makes sense. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff we yeah. can spend. Toilet seats are interesting, but yeah, for yeah. just now, I just want some <laughs> basic data from the state. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Lori, that seems like a, a good place to kind of bring the conversation to a close. People want to learn, like you, you mentioned a couple of times that people don't really know that you're there or know that you're the largest pharmacy in the city or all those sorts of things. How can mm-hmm. people learn more about your organization, whether they need to um, utilize the, the mm-hmm. care offerings or whether they just want to get involved and help out? Or Well, and thank you for that question because I, I didn't mention a big um, opportunity is to come get care. So yeah. almost every staff member, including me, gets the, and Eric gets their care at Partnership Health Center. So you don't have to um, be on a limited income or feel like you need discounted services. Mm-hmm. The care is outstanding. So we've run one uh, recently a number of quality awards nationwide, yeah. um, access awards for serving people in a very timely fashion. So we work really hard to have great services so people can choose to come to us. Um, we have probably 30% of people we see could go anywhere and choose us. Um, other ways they can contact us through the website. They can come see me and come see Eric. Um, and we are working on creating sort of a, uh, uh, expanding our, the understanding of partnership and also providing opportunities for people to give money for things like reach out and read different programs that are, that, that are innovative programs that don't typically have a funding stream. You can't bill for reach out and read. We have yeah, to support it in some other way. Yeah. yeah. And, and if somebody decides, somebody with the ability to pay a full freight decides to come in, mm-hmm. does, I would assume having a, a patient of that, I don't know if that's the right term, but mm-hmm. having a patient like that in your portfolio, that probably helps your ability to serve other people yeah, as well. That's, that's a great point. Yeah. Those yeah. that have resources and can pay fully for care help us see other people who can't pay fully. Yeah, you said it much I more think, elegantly than I, I. Well, and I think it's hard not to equate that with substandard care. It's not. It's an incredible, like, integrated medical, dental, behavioral pharmacy care. So you have these amazing experts in all the fields. Dentists run up and down. Mm-hmm. Doctors run up to dental. Pharmacists are uh, – it's, it's incredibly um, sort of whole person, whole community sure. care for everybody. And, um, yeah, so – We'd love to see people who have resources and people who don't. Awesome. Well, Lori, thanks for coming in, uh, sharing your story, telling us a little bit about uh, partnership. And, um, yeah, best of luck. Thanks for your time and interest. Good to talk to you. Okay, hope you enjoyed that one. Check out PartnershipHealthCenter.com to learn more. Okay, coming up next week, we've got Grant Keir, Executive Director of the Missoula Economic Partnership. Learn all about MEP next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum and interns Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.